You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. Good evening, and welcome to my kitchen. Tonight is for you and for your questions, for rural and urban clinicians and everyone in between. Welcome to how to manage the non-critical COVID-19 inpatient practical tips, and experts Q&A. My name is Dr. Simon Moore. I'm a family physician. I trained in Vancouver, Chilliwack, and Nanaimo. I worked in Ontario, Northwest Territories, and all over British Columbia. And now I work in urgent care, medical education at all levels, as well as in a family practice at an Indigenous clinic in Surrey, British Columbia. And with that, I'd like to acknowledge that UBC CPD is situated on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This is webinar number 11 in a fantastic series of COVID-19 webinars from UBC CPD. Tonight we are very fortunate to have an exceptional panel of very knowledgeable speakers who are going to share their experiences and I can't wait to introduce all of them to you. Tonight is exclusively question and answer with our panel and I see questions are already coming in. We've intentionally avoided making a lengthy slide deck so we can focus on your needs and on your questions. So please start sending in your questions now and throughout the evening, and our panelists are going to try and answer as many as possible in the next 60 to 90 minutes. How do you submit questions? Go to slido.com and enter this code APR-28-webinar. APR-28-webinar, the link is in your email. Type that code in at slido.com and you can ask a question to our exceptional panel. Now, if you're having any technical difficulties, you can still ask questions. We will get to your question if we can. And don't be worried because the webinar will be recorded and it will be shared within a week or so with everyone who registered online. It will also be archived and available on the UBC CPD webpage. And at the end of the session, please remember to take a few moments, fill out the evaluation forms. This is so important. In fact, tonight's session is because of the evaluation forms that we received from other COVID-19 webinars. Attendees asked for a how to manage the non-critical hospitalized COVID-19 inpatients, and that's why we're here tonight. Completing the evaluation will help us make improvements, and you can access the forms in your email inbox at the end of the session. One last thing before we start. The University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine, Division of Continuing Professional Development, have asked me to thank you, to thank our hundreds of faculty members, residents, medical students, nurse practitioners, midwives, healthcare professionals, frontline staff, nurses, respiratory therapists, the list goes on. We know you're working in extraordinarily stressful conditions. We know you're working to provide our public with the best care possible. We cannot thank you enough for the extreme stress you're facing, the extreme challenge you're undertaking. And we know that the stress is mounting, we know that stress is extreme, and we know that that it can be too much for some folks. And, and so I just wanted to add, if this stress is becoming overwhelming, please talk to a colleague. Please contact the Physician Health Program at physicianhealth.com. I also wanted to thank our colleagues around the world who, from whom we learned so much, doctors, clinicians, healthcare workers from China, Italy, Spain, the UK, USA, and everywhere that has been touched by this pandemic. This free webinar tonight is being offered with that in mind and with you in mind. 
A few questions are coming in. We're just waiting for a couple last people to tune in. And thank you for tuning in from Vancouver, Burnaby, rural BC, Salmon Arm, Prince George, elsewhere in Canada, Calgary, Guelph, near where I grew up. Our whole country is cheering us on right now. In fact, I can hear them outside cheering us on. So let's get started. I'm very, very excited to introduce you with our outstanding clinician panel, uh, Dr. Satpal Dillon, Dr. Saida Houdani, and Dr. Katie Wistar. So I'll ask you each to introduce yourselves one by one in alphabetical order. Introduce yourselves. And let's start with you, Dr. Dillon. Take it away. Thanks so much, Simon. That was a beautiful introduction and, and super practical, so I appreciate that. Uh, I'm Fat Dillon. I'm a family physician uh, hospitalist in Nanaimo. Uh, it's one of the COVID sites on Vancouver Island. So uh, along with my uh, brilliant uh, internist colleague, uh, Dr. Dan Onko, we're managing our COVID unit here in Nanaimo. Um, we've definitely seen uh, some patients <laughs> so far, um, from the stable to the to the not-so-stable, so hopefully our experiences and the experiences of my colleagues will help those uh, viewers uh, tonight. Um, we were going to share one pearl each to start with, and um, I'm going to save one uh, and do Katie a favor and not take hers. So I'm, I was just going to say that uh, the pearl I wanted to mention especially to our rural colleagues who, um, at least on the island, I'm not sure if it's the same on the mainland, but uh, the only exception to not sending in or cohorting a COVID-positive patient to one of our sites is if they're end-of-life. So I, I do want to uh, mention that as far as end-of-life care for COVID-positive patients, it's something that, A, will happen anywhere in any community, and B, most communities, I just wanted to give everybody uh, the heads up and the confidence to believe that you can already manage this, you know, with our basic, you know, morphine or hydromorphone, um, uh, your benzos like lorazepam, stepping up to midazolam, and uh, your atypical antipsychotics like nozanin. That's 99% of your palliative patients managed. So I'm happy to get into details later if we need to, but I just wanted to give that one pearl that, A, it's something that everybody may have to do, and B, um, you guys can already do it. That's fantastic and uh, practical. We know that we know these medications. We can do this, and we're all rooting for you. So let's move on to our next panelist, Dr. Saida Houdani. Please introduce yourself and share your program. Hi, I'm Saida Houdani. I am a practicing physician for 30 years. I started off at uh, in Nova Scotia, and now I am in. Um, in uh, I'm at uh, BC, uh, working at Royal Columbian Hospital as a hospitalist for the last 20 years. Um, COVID-19 has been very, very challenging. Uh, we uh, have a ward at RCH where we have uh, cohort both uh, positive as well as low risk. Uh, meaning that their, their swab has not come back positive, and, but something in their symptomatology, as you know, which can be anything from being tired to cough, fever, is uh, cohorted on the same floor. My pearl for um, all would be is that I use this um, graph that is basically a more a visual on the disease process, starting from the viral to the pulmonary to the host reaction. Using this tool 
has helped me actually manage most of my patients uh, because it, it gives me an idea as to who to worry about, when to be uh, very, very cautious about doing tests, when to um, then be uh, calling my colleagues in ICU or HAU that I may need help in getting them to ICU um, quickly. So um, I think we are going to include that graph in, our, in one of our slides, but I, that is the one tool that I'm one pearl that I would, I, I just felt that it really did help me manage uh, my COVID uh, my, my positive patients. Thanks. Fantastic. And Dr. Katie Whisker, please go ahead. Hi, thanks, Simon. Uh, so I am a general internist. I work at Vancouver General Hospital, uh, and I, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert. I think you're overselling us, Simon. But uh, I've spent quite a bit of time in the last six weeks or so, last two months, working as part of our VGH uh, Emerge Triage CTU team. So with that, seeing quite a lot of COVID patients as they roll through the Emerge uh, and triaging them. Some end up with us, some end up in ICU, uh, and following them a bit on the floor as well. So that has kind of been my experience. Um, and from that perspective, especially seeing patients as they're coming in, my pearl to share initially is to do with the test, so the RT-PCR test and the imperfect nature of that test. And I think that was something that wasn't really clear, at least to me, at the start of this pandemic. Uh, and we've realized through, um, you know, through experience and through having a few unfortunate cases that really the, the sensitivity usually reported in the literature of this test is about 60%, and that's been about our experience. So I think it's really important to have a pretest probability so what we're doing when we see patients is we're trying to decide, uh, are they a low, moderate, or high pretest probability of COVID? And if anyone is a moderate or high pretest probability, we're not ruling out COVID with one negative test. We're going ahead and swabbing them again. Uh, sometimes, even if that second swab comes back negative, we are continue to, continuing to isolate them with droplet and contact precautions and looking for other markers, because we've had patients have three, four, or five swabs come back negative, and then the last one is positive, or they get intubated and bronched, and that's positive. So I think it's uh, important to rely on your, your clinical gestalt, uh, not just the test with this disease. Thank you. Very helpful, very practical. And we have uh, a few people are still signing on now. We've got hundreds of participants we can see. So welcome to everyone from around the world for joining us. So let's go into that, that graph a little bit more, Dr. Gudani, and uh, then we'll start to get to the questions. And while she's speaking to that, if you've got questions, please do type them in at slido.com, and the code is APR-28-webinar. So, uh, Lindsay, if you're able to put up that slide, and Dr. Houdani, would you mind sharing us uh, your thoughts on that slide? So, the reason why I like this slide is that, as um, Katie also mentioned, um, it, it helps you, if the test comes back negative, yet there are markers or information or a, a clinical scenario, either pulmonary test or something that makes you suspicious that this person does have COVID. And because we do not have 100% from the testing, you have to rely on your clinical judgment. We also need some other markers. And so these markers have helped me. So when they first come in, they usually are not going to be admitted unless they're in the early pulmonary stage because they're requiring oxygen. Most people have been home for the viral stage. When they're in the pulmonary stage and the, the, the patients that I've had that have crashed have been in that host inflammatory response stage. So when they first get admitted, I usually do the panel of the, uh, 
the markers alongside with the chest X-ray um, just to see what they're like. I've had people go with an X-ray that is normal and within two days or three days have significant patchiness with uh, peripheral infiltrates that you that I've just never seen before in an X-ray, and um, which leads to a more COVID picture. So having initially having those tests then watching them, and as they start to either get better or if they start to decline, using the markers again to give you an idea as to how much of a response they're having, their D-dimers going up, their uh, CRP going up from 60 to 200, chest X-ray going from almost normal to now having patchy infiltrates, then makes you, high, makes you more aware that this person will likely decline rapidly. You now then have more um, markers test that you can then call your ICU um, colleagues to help you out if if this person is the full code and is going to go to HAU or ICU. The other test is um, obviously at our site, at RCH, and I believe it's uh, across Fraser Health, is that if their FiO2 needs increase or if they're requiring more than five liters, by using some of this test, I've had a couple of patients where they're their O2 needs didn't really go up much. They didn't reach the five-liter mark, but it, their work of breathing did. And with the markers increasing, some of their um, comorbidities, like heart disease and that, made it so these patients actually went to ICU earlier than later. So that is why I really like this test. It, it gives it, this, this um, um, graph. It just helps me manage patients. And like Katie mentioned, we, we know so little, and, it, and each individual, seems to react differently, but if you have some baseline of what you can go through, use, like markers and uh, um, um, chest x-ray, it, it helps us navigate and help manage the patient. We only have symptom control at the moment. We unfortunately have very little else, else to do to try to help these patients or stabilize them to try to recover from this. Thank you, Dr. Houdani. So we've got many questions coming in about these specific tests that are being ordered. Uh, so Dr. Dillon, are you ordering these same markers in, in Nanaimo on the island? And uh, how do you monitor these patients and any other comments about that graph? Yeah, no, great questions and great points from Saida. So uh, basically, yes, short answer, we are, we are um, uh, testing for these markers for sure. I think our intervals of testing from preliminary chats with, with the other panelists here are slightly different uh, on the island and the mainland. But yes, we're definitely testing them. It's definitely more of a prognostic uh, factor. And, and the key that I wanted to take away from that graph and from what Salida was saying, was, which we're on the same page with, is it's the, it's the rate of change of a lot of these markers that are far more important than the actual value of the marker. So for example, if we have a patient who's completely stable, they just need a liter of oxygen, but overnight, you know, you can see the trend going that now they need two liters after a couple hours, they need three. Their CRP last night was 12, but now it's 25, and then it's 120. We may have higher values that may not con uh, correlate with a sick, typical patient, but it's the rate of change of a lot of these markers that we've seen so far and seems somewhat consistent with the literature, and I know it's all kind of new and, and it's not really a set in stone, but it seems consistent that it's the rate of change of these markers that seem to... Uh, uh, tip us off to the people that are going to need that ICU call. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Whisker, what are you doing to monitor patients at Vancouver General Hospital? 
Yeah, I mean, I think a, I think a similar thing. All of those markers mentioned: D-dimer, uh, ferritin, CRP, fibrinogen, liver enzymes, troponins. Uh, we're doing those on admission to help with uh, diagnostic um, sort of decision making, as well as then typically daily or every other day on the ward for us uh, to see who may be entering that hyperinflammatory state. Uh, I know in the ICU, they're using some of those markers to guide potential therapies. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but that's not really something like we're not empirically giving people steroids uh, or anticoagulation based on those. But again, using that as a prognostic marker of who may be heading downhill. Um, and I totally agree. I think it's a very useful graph and a very use useful visual schematic. I think it is important to say that it's not, um, it's that it's kind of been uh, made up by those authors uh, based on their clinical experience, but we, we don't have good proof that that is, you know, the truth of this disease process. So our knowledge in that graph may evolve over the coming months, but that's kind of the best of what we know so far and seems to fit with our collective experience. Exactly. The quality of evidence these days is, is limited as we're reading a lot of pre-press articles, but uh, trying to do the best for our patients indeed. Now, Dr. Houdani, you mentioned chest x-ray. One of our questions was, are you using CT to diagnose COVID in these patients? They were doing that in China. I personally haven't seen it in uh, British Columbia, but uh, what about you, Dr. Houdani, and then I'll ask the rest of the group. Um, no uh, to CT. The one thing that, we, um, that I want to stress is that uh, when some of these patients that come in, because we still have a lag for 24, 48 hours for a test to come in, and sometimes if the test is negative, but they still have dyspnea, you don't have a reason, don't have an answer, chest x-ray looks okay. CT scan sometimes is difficult to get if the, uh, the COVID test is pending. Uh, but uh, we are not using that to confirm or uh, disprove that they don't have COVID. If I have someone who has a D-dimer that's positive, the COVID comes back negative, maybe even two, or you have a suspicion of something else, please, I mean, the one thing that we've noted is that be cognizant that there are other disease processes like heart failure, like uh, a recent MI that's led to, uh, to um, uh, pulmonary edema, and uh, some of these chest x-rays look like pulmonary edema with the patchiness and the, so you have to be cognizant of looking for other things, not just be stuck on their COVID negative or COVID positive and not miss something for that one day while you're waiting for other tests. So to answer your question, no, we're not using CT scans um, to disprove it. If we need a CT scan to rule out other things, we are using it. All right, uh, Dr. Dillon, how about in the NIMO? Yeah, same, in short, same answer. And uh, yeah, it's not it's not a, to rule in COVID at all. It's mostly, like Sayyid mentioned, a lot of our CHF COPD patients have been holding on at home with all of this. Everybody's been avoiding the hospital. So what we've been seeing in the last maybe five, six, seven days is a, a kind of trickling in of all these people that can't hold on anymore. And most of our respiratory investigation uh, patients are CHF exacerbations, COPD exacerbations, pneumonias, people that typically come in uh, for these sort of things that we're trying to hold out at home. But short answer, no. And Dr. Whisker, how about uh, in Vancouver General CT, is that being used to diagnose COVID? No, a, a similar story as uh, Saida and Satpal. I think that we, we don't have a problem getting a CT if there's a COVID test pending, so that hasn't been a rate-limiting step, uh, but the rationale for its use would be to look for other diagnoses typically. That being said, I have had patients on the ward who've had one or two negative COVID tests who 
continue to have respiratory distress, elevated inflammatory markers, and I don't have a good alternate diagnosis, and I have ordered CT scans in those patients to try to look for COVID uh, when the PCRs have been negative. Um, so a bit of that, yeah. So to get to one of the themes that's come up, and it's, it's now our top question, uh, one of the questions is I've heard that patients suffering from home can crash quite suddenly and unexpectedly and die at home. So how do we avoid this sudden death? Are you seeing this on the wards as well, uh, Dr. Hudani? I haven't seen sudden death at home, I mean, in the hospital setting. Um, so I can't really comment on that. Uh, I can only say that uh, patients that have gone into respiratory distress, um, and I think I'd just like to share what Katie has said is that this disease is evolving, our knowledge is evolving, and t what I say today or what we say today, tomorrow might be changed <laughs> totally. But uh, we, we have, and one of the things I said earlier is that this disease is so challenging is that most things that I deal with, even if it's palliative, I know what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it, I know the disease projection. The two patients that I have sent to HAU and ICU, despite getting early intervention into intubating, they still died. And it's very hard, it's saddening and it's heartbreaking because you kind of feel you missed something. And I think at the end of the day, you realize it's the disease and there's nothing that we have in our, uh, in our tools right now that can prevent it. So if someone does die suddenly at home, there's nothing you could have done, even if you caught them early, to have maybe prevented that. Any thoughts from our other panelists before I move to the next question? Yeah, I think um, I mean I think I, I have seen several of these patients who have come into emerge on room air and then over the course of several hours decompensated very quickly. So I think that's kind of the phenomenon that's being asked about. Um, and I think it all comes down to where they are in their disease trajectory. And often when they come in and emerge initially, especially before when you have we have any lab work done or imaging, it's really hard to tell. But I think those patients who are either dying at home or crashing and emerge, are those people, people who have just tipped into that host inflammatory response phase and they're just getting into this cytokine storm and developing uh, respiratory failure from that perspective. So I think the best thing we can do, honestly, is from a public health perspective uh, and encouraging people to seek care if symptoms are worsening um, and trying to, trying to get people to not be afraid of the hospital. Yeah, and we're, we're hearing people avoiding us, and our emergency room volumes and urgent care volumes have definitely reflected that. So I'll move on to the next question. How do you stratify patients into low, moderate, or high suspicion for COVID? So in other words, how do you determine who to repeat a swab in? And, and this question resonates with me, too, because I saw that CMAG article that says they had a patient with four tests before they, they found they were positive. Yeah, I, I, I admitted five. Oh, I no kidding. Him. Okay. Yeah. And I, I had a patient I got called about saying that they, they were in exposure and they had had four negative tests before I saw them and they finally tested positive on the fifth one. So so who is it that, that makes you think that uh, maybe we should be getting a second or third or fourth test, uh, Dr. Whisker? Gosh, I think that's such a hard question because I think initially, um, you know, we, we didn't even really recognize the GI component that this disease can present with, right? So I think that our, our knowledge of how this presents, again, is evolving. I think that the people in whom, the people for me who are low pre-test probability are the people in whom I have a pretty convincing alternative diagnosis um, and their clinic and their clinical story is not really compatible compatible with COVID. Like they maybe have one feature, like maybe they're nauseous or like they have a bit of a cough, but I'm, 
I have a slam dunk x-ray for a low bar pneumonia, or I know they have lung cancer or something like that. Uh, I think the moderate pretests are the ones where I might have an alternate diagnosis, but their stories and, and or labs are pretty good for COVID. Uh, and the high pretest probability are the ones that it's just, it's slam dunk. It totally sounds like all those classic descriptions, fever, shortness of breath, patchy infiltrates, lymphopenia, all those things. And, and we just don't have a positive test yet. So that is my internal algorithm, but I'm very curious to see what the others have to say. Anyone else? Um, um, go ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. I think all I was going <laughs> to all I was going to say is uh, very similar to what Katie does, except I do actually um, use the markers on the day of admission to see where they are, and if the markers are negative, even though they may have some symptoms. I'm leaning like a cough or, you know, we get the weakness now or failure to thrive is considered positive or a marker or symptom for um, COVID now. And so uh, to I, I use that. And if everything comes back negative and the test is swab is negative, then I feel very comfortable in sending them back to the floor because they obviously still need an admission. But I've had, I've had a gentleman where the chest x-ray was definitely not in keeping with the pneumonia. His markers were not in keeping with what was, what, uh, it's certainly inflammatory. It's an inflammatory process. And so with him, even though the test, two tests came back negative, I treated him as a COVID positive. So it, it is, it's based on a constellation of things. And you develop your own little tool set, I guess, until we have tests that are um, uh, proven or validated by someone else with many, many other COVID-positive patients. That Paul, go ahead. Yeah, no, just a quick point. Uh, in brief, I totally agree with Katie's uh, uh, comments. Uh, the one thing I just wanted to highlight was that I think, and I think Saida mentioned it earlier, is that I think the, the physician tendency to beat yourself up for not having predicted the course or the trajectory of these patients. It, it's very hard to avoid, but I think my my number one uh, piece of advice would be to try not to because I know we're not supposed to talk about N equal one cases and, uh, and, you know, like, but what we've seen go sideways in Nanaimo at least have shown up at day 21 and have showed up at day seven and have showed up with normal labs and have showed up with abnormal labs. So I, I think trust your clinical judgment um, so you touched on a few things that they're looking at, and Katie touched on others. There's somebody from ID or ICU in your site or that you can call um, if you need help in terms of uh, triaging a low, medium, or high-risk patient, and I would just suggest please do that just for a rough guideline. Don't uh, discount your own clinical judgment, um, and, and don't beat yourself up if the outcomes go a different direction because this is novel, and we don't really know at this point. Indeed, N of one is a large trial in this in this setting, and and we've already seen uh, things change so rapidly. Things that we did were that were so last week and are no longer clinically done. So, uh, let's let's go to the next top question. What helps for dyspnea in non-ventilated patients? What helps for dyspnea? What are you using? Uh, what are on your pre-printed orders? And uh, what medications and, and perhaps non-pharmacological interventions are you using? Um, maybe we'll start with Dr. Whisker. Sorry, was that me? I missed that. Um, so, I mean, 
I think, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, the, the trouble with this disease is that care is primarily supportive, especially in a ward um, setting. So I think that, you know, usual standard supportive oxygen therapy, your hospital will probably have um, protocols of what they consider aerosol generating and what is not, uh, and what thresholds need a referral to critical care. So for us, kind of, we would use oxygen up to six liters by nasal prongs on the ward. Uh, and then after that, we need at least an ICU opinion about whether or not they need more oxygen. Uh, in terms of pharmacologic therapy, I mean, I think maybe Satpal can touch more on this, but certainly if we're talking about palliating dyspnea as a, as a symptom, then your typical medications like opioids um, and benzodiazepines would be appropriate. I think the other thing that has got a lot of attention on social media and is actually easier than it seems is, is proning for awake patients, but not that you even need to prone these people, but I think encouraging them to not lie flat on their backs for 24 hours a day is probably a pretty reasonable thing. Uh, and there's, I think, some trials ongoing right now about awake proning in spontaneously breathing patients, but I think even just encouraging your patients to move around in bed to lie on one side and then the other um, is maybe something that could A, make them feel better and also potentially offer some oxygenation benefits. Anyone else want to comment on that before we move to the next question? No, I just wanted to say that we're, we're doing the exact same criteria on the island in terms of when to get an ICU opinion, so that's kind of reassuring because one of the biggest stress factors so far have been health authority differences. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that uh, <laughs> most of my patients, I try to make sure they're not moving around at nighttime so that we're not getting the ICU call in the middle of the night. So keep them in their bed uh, a little bit elevated, head of the bed elevated, and, and it seems to do the trick most of the time. That's fantastic. And I know another one of the resources that many of us have used is the EM RAP podcast. And they talk about, they've got photos there where you can see patients who are prone, who have uh, a pillow under their chest to give them comfort as well. So um, one of the questions at the top right now is about PCR sensitivities, and everybody's waiting for the antibody test. Uh, any, anyone know about when the antibody test is coming and when we can expect it? And, um, and uh, any rumors about that? I mean, I can't speak to things here in particular about when it might be coming to BC. I know that there's been studies uh, in China, in Europe, uh, I think in the U.S. as well, looking at antibody testing. And, you know, there is evidence that most people do tend to mount sort of both an IgG and an IgM response. Uh, there are no studies so far that I'm aware of looking at long-term immunity. So looking at over kind of six to seven weeks to see if there is immunity after that and persistent uh, IgG levels after that. So, um I don't know, I, and I, I certainly don't know when they may be coming to a hospital near you. I don't know if that's all they're saying, I can comment. Not sure, so we'll move on to the next question about discharge and follow-up. These are the top questions right now. So when these patients are sent home, what are you doing in terms of arranging follow-up, asking them to be seen again, uh, asking them to return, any investigations? Uh, how about uh, you, Dr. Zudani, we'll start with you. Um, so in terms of uh, where they are, if they're well enough to leave, usually it's because they're not requiring oxygen, um, and uh, follow-up would be continuing on uh, isolation, what the public health has. Public health right now is requiring us to do a swab before they're discharged, and they're going to follow up with another swab when they're in discharge, and again, that seems to change on a daily basis based on, um, I don't think authority, but maybe just what's coming around. And, uh, with more testing, I think maybe other other uh, markers they want to be public health wants to use to know where the disease is and that. 
so definitely isolation, quarantine, all of those requirements and how long. The ones that have actually had uh, pulmonary changes, because that's what I'm really interested in. Some of these chest x-rays look really bad. And I want to know what kind of long-lasting impact they're going to have. So one, a couple of them I've actually asked in a month's time to get a chest x-ray just to see if there's uh, um, consistent changes, any changes, will they need follow-up, respirology, that kind of stuff. So that has been so far my um, follow-up in terms of uh, follow-up with family physicians. It's usually been within a week, just even if it's just a phone call, because it's mainly all virtual these days anyway. Any other panelists want to comment on that? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sapal. Sorry, I was just going to mention that I don't know if this is authority specific, but um, uh, home health monitoring is being used in fairly remote communities here. I, uh, maybe, Katie, you can let me know next if that's something on the mainland. Like in Alert Bay, for example, we just had a very complex set of discharges where patients are going to a fairly remote location, but they still have the same amount of, uh, you know, Q6, O2 uh, monitoring that is sent to a GP, which is you know, who can call uh, our hospital. So so that was great. Um, uh, as far as um, follow-up beyond that, though, I, I, I don't have anything specific or set in terms of a routine or a guideline, so uh, I'm curious to hear what happens on the mainland. Yeah, so I think that's something that's just being developed in the last couple of weeks at VGH. So the respirology group, in concert with our general internal medicine group, is doing sort of uh, a post post-COVID clinic, essentially. Uh, and so as of right now, all these patients are getting a phone call, I think, at post-discharge day two, usually by the general internist, to kind of just check in. Uh, and then they're all being seen in either at the respirology and or GIM clinic, and they're getting follow-up, I think, imaging as well as PFTs. And I think the plan is to be followed longitudinally and potentially to be incorporated into, into research because, obviously, we, we have no idea right now what the long-term prognostication is for these people. Um, the other thing just to say is we are not, as far as I know, as far as like a few days ago, uh, doing PCRs to confirm a negative test before sending these people home. Uh, the only situation in which they'll get that is if they're going to a long-term care facility because then there's implications for ongoing isolation. But otherwise, I think it's assumed that if they've had sort of their 10 days from symptom onset, which is the public health recommendations, that they're just told to go home and continue self-isolating. That's fantastic. Very helpful. Um, so we've got 40 questions in the queue, and we'll just keep barreling through them. And of course, uh, it's, sometimes it's helpful to know that there's there's no resource that you're using. There's no algorithm for the one day, three day, five of discharge. So that's why we're here. And any of our attendees, if, if you want, please, please do post in, in the questions. And I'm, and I'm keeping an eye out at the top and the bottom what's going on. So a question from Burnaby about reinfection. We're hearing about reinfection from other parts of the world and uh, wondering if that's a thing. Have any of you seen cases of a patient who had COVID, uh, sent home perhaps, and now it's been reinfected? I haven't. Yeah, I feel so. The last time I looked at the literature, kind of a, a group and I are doing kind of these regular deep dives into the literature. And the last time that we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, there are certainly press reports of people having negative PCR testing that then has converted to positive PCR testing, but none of the cases that have been reported thus far have had either symptoms or new imaging changes with CT infiltrates accompanying that. 
So the significance of that, that positive PCR test to me is a bit unclear whether that's just remaining sort of viral fragments, I'm not sure. But as far as I know, as of a couple weeks ago, there weren't actually any reports of clinical reinfection. And just briefly to add, no, I, I, we haven't seen in one, uh, a case like that yet, um, and, I, and I haven't heard of anything beyond what Katie just mentioned. So when the video of this is released next week, who knows, maybe all that will have changed, but uh, let's move on. Uh, there's a couple of questions at the top about the, the thromboprophylaxis. Now, there's, there's not only the inflammatory cascade, but also perhaps this hypercoagulability that we're seeing in these COVID patients. Are you seeing that? Are you, are you giving these patients prophylaxis in hospital? Is aspirin being used? Are you using heparin? And are you discharging them on prophylaxis? I know they're doing that in New York, so we'd love to hear uh, what's going on. Let's start with uh, Dr. Houdani. Um, so we have not done it. Uh, I certainly haven't done it, and it's not part of the PPO that we have um, in terms of using that. We definitely use DVT prophylaxis, but that's about it. Um, the, the, I know we see the thrombosis, but there is also the risk for, because it's uh, during a host uh, storm, there's also the risk for bleeding. Um, so a couple of people have died with intracranial hemorrhages. So just, I'm not quite sure um, where in the disease trajectory they're using the DVT or a therapeutic heparin or anticoagulation. Um, I have not kept up to date with that literature, that piece of the, part of the um, disease. Dr. Dillon and then Dr. Whitker. Um, I'm not speaking for any health authority at this point, but I am putting our patients on DPT prophylaxis regardless of their risk factors or mobility status. Um, an internal medicine colleague of mine is also going a step further with a DOAC and ASA. But again, I'm not speaking for the health authority or any guideline. This is more of uh, 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 just based on what we've been seeing in terms of uh, clinical outcomes that are coming to light. Yeah, I think this is such an interesting topic. So our practice at BGH, and I think across Vancouver Coastal, is that these patients get kind of a, a higher dose of DVT prophylaxis or an intermediate dose, if you will, so a noxaparin 30 BID as opposed to the 40 once a day. Um, that's been on the ward. I know that in some of the patients who've become more critically ill because they're just seeing such profound thrombosis. I think, I, I know bleeding certainly, as Saida says, um, happens, but I think the experience here has been to see a lot more really troublesome thrombosis, so DVTs, PEs, line clots, um, that kind of thing. So I think there is some empiric anticoagulation happening in the absence of uh, confirmed DVT or PE, but that has been in the ICU. As far as I know, we have not done that yet on the ward. People are just getting that higher dose of anox, uh, and no aspirin for us empirically yet. I think there have been a couple of patients, actually, uh, that have been discharged on like tenevaroxaban uh, in consultation with our hematology colleagues who've just had really profoundly elevated D-dimers and fibrinogens, uh, but those have been exceptions. And again, it, it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis in chatting with the subspecialist. So I'd just like to go back to those lab tests because one of the questions was, uh, why are we getting ferritin? And so I, I believe that's to, to assess and monitor the, the inflammatory cascade. Are there any panel of tests or, or battery of tests that you do before discharge to say that someone's ready to go home? Or is that more about you know the clinical course? We've seen these numbers are elevated, and that's why we called hematology, Dr. Whitker. 
Uh, so I, th I think both. I think that for us on the COVID floor, we are repeating the labs usually every couple of days to see that they're trending down nicely. And certainly one elevated lab value in isolation wouldn't be a barrier to discharge. But I think you want to see overall the trend that everything is coming down uh, nicely. Not that things are returned to normal, but that it's all going in the right direction. So I think we are using it both for, for kind of readiness for discharge as well as for keeping an eye out for the people who may be becoming hyperinflammatory, maybe going into DIC, maybe heading to the ICU. Uh, so both of those, I guess. And another comment about the, the, the thrombosis. So we talked about big clots, but a very, very hot topic this week is the COVID toes. So have any of you seen those? We had a patient at urgent care yesterday with query COVID toes, but uh, no other symptoms. And uh, it, it's early days. We're not really sure what this is. But the question is, are so-called COVID toes and other microthrombotic skin phenomena truly associated with COVID infection? And, and you may have seen these, they, they look similar to uh, perineal, uh, another commonly known uh, skin infection. Any of you seen that? I'll start with, how about you, Dr. Dillon? No, short answer, I, ha I haven't seen it. I have been reading this, these recent case studies on it, and I, and I find it fascinating, but no, I, I haven't seen it. Uh, nothing similar in our presentation yet. And I'll take it by the silence that uh, these have not come dancing into your clinic either. So uh, a question from Rosanna, how long is COVID-associated cough lasting? And I know from the guidance we've gotten from the medical health officers, you can still be coughing. If it's been 10 days and all your other symptoms are gone, you're clear to go back to work. Um, have any of you been seeing long-term coughs after COVID? Sorry, yes, I'll just say that we, we had a discharge today, a colleague and I, um, and we were on the phone with public health, and uh, uh, long story short, yes, there, there was a, a post-infectious cough, and we were told that it wasn't a positive symptom or a symptom to concern ourselves in terms of still being high risk. Um, so they did go back, and they have been discharged um, with a cough, but with no other uh, signs or symptoms and off oxygen and, and, and all the rest of it. All right, so unless I see uh, any of you jump in to, to comment after a question is answered, let's stick with one answer per question. Um, again, you're all welcome to comment, but again, we've been picking away at the question pile and it's only getting longer, which is fantastic. So again, please go to Slido, type in your questions, that's why we're here. And you'll notice that there's a little thumbs up next to the questions. If you click on that, especially on the lower down question, that will help the questions go to the top and we're sticking with the most popular questions. So uh, the top question right now, what are the groups on high-flow nasal cannula oxygen treatment. Uh, initially, we were saying that is droplet generating, and then there was debate about that. I think one of the brand names is uh, OptiFlow, and maybe now we're wondering that the, the drops are heavier and doesn't produce as many droplets. Uh, Dr. Whisker, any comments on that? Oh, gosh, it's such a good, such a good topic. So I, th I think that there's two issues here. I think that one is the... Um, the safety and the, the issue of aerosol generating. Uh, and one of my colleagues actually in Surrey, I think one of your intensivists there, Anish Mitra, put together kind of a deep dive of, of the literature a couple of weeks ago. And there wasn't really any great evidence for that being unsafe. So uh, I think, I mean, the bottom line has to be do whatever your hospital and health authority policy is in terms of PPE with that. But I don't think there's great evidence that that is aerosol generating and unsafe. I think the other big part of that question is the clinical benefit of hyponasal cannula. Um, and I feel like our policy on 
kind of intubation and management pre-intubation has kind of done a, a 180 in the last like month. The early reports from China were really all about early intubation to prevent deterioration. And now, especially with some stuff coming out in New York, there's uh, much more of a push to kind of delayed intubation, minimizing ventilator-induced lung injury, trying to keep these patients on high nasal cannula or other non-invasive modes of support for longer. Um, I don't, I don't know what is right. I don't know if anyone knows what is right, and then there's still sort of a lot of debate around this subject. But I think that um, if you intubate everyone after they're on more than six liters of nasal prongs, you're going to run out of ventilators, and it's probably not a great thing. So I, I think that probably high flow and other forms of non-invasive support is reasonable as long as you're keeping a close eye on these patients and obviously involving your, your critical care colleagues. I would just like to add, I don't know about other authorities, but we can't do high flow or um, on, um, sorry, uh, optiflow on the floor. So they have to go to an HAU um, facility. So unless that policy changes for the non-critical care COVID patient, that is one of our limiting, they would need to go to HAU. So I'm not sure if other authorities have the same barrier or other hospitals. Uh, sorry, just to jump in to ask the panelists a question. Saida, are, are, is your institution or your health authority looking at creating an environment in which you can do that? And I'm, and I'm mentioning that because we have one negative pressure room on our, our respiratory unit, our COVID unit, in which we can do high flow nasal cannula. And we're actually looking at building more because, um, like Katie was mentioning, this may, depending on the evidence in the next few weeks, be a, a good stopgap to prevent uh, ventilation. Is that something that's come up in your hospital or others that you know of? Um, I'm not aware of it. I just know that any time that I have tried to do high flow on the floor, I can do it in Emerge, but I cannot do it on the floor. I think, uh, like Katie mentioned, I know that one of my patients, we were... Uh, that was the debate, and because uh, high flow was the new trend, uh, OptiFlow was a new trend, we were able to do that for him and kept him off ventilator for five days, which was awesome. But uh, I, I think that, that that makes sense. I don't understand why you cannot do OptiFlow um, on the wards, but uh, we, again, at negative pressure rooms are limiting, and how can you create them? So there are ways of doing it, and uh, if we, well, we ha I haven't heard of anything yet. Uh, I'm sure if they're working on it, they, they will let us know when it's done. <laughs> and this is all going to change rapidly. We're already going from intubation now saying maybe BiPAP is okay. And there's a, there's a Calgary company that's already working on making helmet-based ventilation like we've been seeing in Italy as well. So you might be seeing that in Canada as well. So um, we'll move on to the next question. When should COVID-19 patients be managed at home? go to ER. And I'll, I'll direct this to you, Dr. Houdani, and recognizing that a lot of our colleagues are seeing patients virtually on the phone by telemedicine or even rural, rural physicians who uh, aren't seeing patients face-to-face -face and trying to give a patient the advice on when is it that they should come to hospital. Um, I think that the, uh, mo the, when you are either talking to them or seeing them and you realize their work of breathing is quite labored, um, then I think they, or, you know, some of us do have pulse oximeters. If you see, because that's one of the things that, that was meant by quite a few emergent nurses, they said they will walk in, they look normal. It's only when you do their O2 sat that they're down to 82 on room air. 
is when you need that the, you know this person needs to be admitted. So you, um, for the patients that have required oxygen or are, are tending that way, it's usually the work of breathing has increased. And I'm talking about young people. I know there's this thing that it's all the elderly. It's not. It's actually some of the younger ones that are running into much more problems than the elderly. And so it's the young one that wakes up with feeling more short of breath, unable to breathe, uh, that they need to come in. Um, and they need to come in now. <laughs> because as we've mentioned many times is that we, we've seen people in hospital crash within two hours or less. So we tell them to come in and uh, we put them on oxygen and we use that stepwise approach that I'm hearing with the nasal, nasal prongs and then high flow, uh, maybe repositioning them. Um, and uh, Dr. Whisker, I'll ask you one of the, the questions near the top here. So when is it that you're going to pull the trigger on intubation? And as someone's asking specifically about uh, were we intubating people too early? How has practice pattern changed over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, I think that uh, probably the panel here are not typically the ones making the decision to intubate. We're, we're lucky in that other, other smart people are making that decision. So that's obviously going to be something that the IT docs are deciding. But, but I do think that the pendulum has shifted. I feel like cases I had early in the pandemic, uh, patients were being taken from four or six liters of oxygen. Uh, and then with sort of still reasonable stats, but with increasing tachypnea and increasing work of breathing, we're being intubated quite early. Uh, and now we're seeing much less of that. Um, so I think that, again, that is sort of this trend in thinking that perhaps we're doing more harm than good to some of these patients by intubating them early. We know that being on a ventilator is not a benign thing, and perhaps we're causing more ventilator-induced lung injury when really it does seem like the primary pathology in this disease is hypoxemia and isolated hypoxemia. So if we can provide them increasing oxygenation without doing them the harms of being on positive pressure ventilation, then, then maybe that's a good thing. So I don't know when the right answer is in terms of when to intubate people. I think that is a obviously a nuanced clinical question. Every patient is going to be different. You're going to be looking at their, um, their lab values, their ABG, their work of breathing, their comorbidities, all of those things. But get smart people around you and, and consider your patient's individual physiology is probably the best answer. And it sounds like as much as we want to avoid intubation, sometimes it's not a choice if we're going to be transferring a patient from a rural area. I know, I know some of you've got experience in rural areas as well. So uh, when those patients get on the vent, the top question right now is what percentage of mechanically ventilated patients are coming off the ventilators in, in your hospitals? Are you aware of that ratio, that number? I'll leave that open for anyone to answer. Yeah, I don't want to speak too confidently, but I think RICU has actually had quite good outcomes. I know in general mortality for mechanically ventilated patients like worldwide that's been reported, reported has been really bad. It's been sort of upwards of 50%, but I think locally we're seeing like almost high single digit numbers in terms of mortality. Now, that, that's not official data. Don't quote me on that, but I, I think we're seeing better outcomes than, than have been reported, whether that's just because um, we have a lot of staff and you know, still a lot of open beds right now that the system's not overwhelmed. Whether that's because we're seeing healthier patients, I'm not sure. But So let's move on to the next question, and it's, it's the, the debate about PPE. And I know that all different clinicians are doing different things. The health authorities have the recommendations. I know some eMERGE docs, for example, are buying respirators. Uh, some are being told, please don't wear your respirators. And, and in my urgent care clinic, uh, everyone's wearing at least one surgical mask. Sometimes you'll see someone wearing two, someone's wearing an N95 mask underneath it. The official recommendation for us is to use N95 for aerosol-generating medical procedures, 
But so what are you seeing on your wards? Uh, maybe let's start with Dr. Dillon. I was really hoping this question wouldn't come up because I, I don't I don't have a, a concise answer. Um, the bottom line is that for, for the sake of our nursing colleagues and our allied health colleagues, we're trying to stick with the the message of a surgical mask for patients that are undifferentiated, droplet precautions for patients that are COVID positive or, or have RSV or influenza, and N95 for patients that you're, you're going to be doing an aerosol generating medical procedure on, including CPR. Um, the huge asterisk to that comment is that I, yeah, I know colleagues of mine are doing things differently as well, but that's the company line, and, and that's the one I think I'm going to tow for the sake of our allied health colleagues and our nurses. So again, uh, our number of questions is exactly the same as it was last time I checked. No, it just went up by one. So uh, moving right on, any advice on when to send in a patient with suspected or confirmed COVID if you are working 200 kilometers away from an ICU? Uh, let's say, Dr. Whisker, when do you want to be called about these patients and uh, how soon do you want them to be getting in a, in a buggy or a helicopter and being brought to your hospital? Um, I think that a lot of that would depend on their code status. I think that I mean, the policies here, even locally, are that anyone who is a full code is being transferred to one of our sort of tertiary care COVID centers. So even from Mount St. Joseph's Hospital at like 16th and Kingsway, if they're a full code, they're being transported to St. Paul. So I think that if you have a COVID patient in your community who is a full code who you think needs to come into hospital, I think they should probably be at a hospital with, with an ICU. Because our experience thus far, I think, is that we're not very good at predicting who is going to get very sick. Um, if they have very mild disease and can very clearly be managed at home, then then that's probably appropriate with close follow-up. But that would be my my sort of opinion on that. So it sounds like they're high risk for, for quick decompensation. All right, we're going to back to masks. What about the patients? Are the patients wearing masks? All the patients in the hospital, including non-COVID masks, non-COVID patients, are you asking them to wear masks as well? What's going on in your clinic? Let's start with uh, uh, Dr. Gudani. Go ahead. Yeah, no, we're we're definitely uh, not asking um, patients that are non-COVID uh, to wear masks. I think anybody um, that is COVID positive going for procedures like a chest X-ray, whatever, if they're going down or CT scan, they're certainly wearing a mask. Um, but uh, mostly, um, the allied team and the healthcare providers are wearing masks. All right, so let's go to the next question. I'm simply wondering how come we don't know more from China, Italy, and other countries who are many months into this? Any comment? I'll leave that one open. I mean, I think, I think we do know a lot considering we knew nothing about this disease like, you know, three months ago. I think that, you know, normally knowledge translation in medicine happens over a span of years and high quality RTTs take years or decades to be published. And, and so I, I think there's a ton of information out there. The amount of literature coming out is unbelievable, but a lot of it by necessity is very low quality because it's being done so quickly. So I think we're just struggling with that and with the absence of high quality uh, literature because of course with observational trials, they're very flawed. And so our thinking kind of keeps flip-flopping, but people are trying. The collective medical intelligence is really trying to figure this out. Um, 
So we're getting to the point now where we've got five minutes left officially, but uh, let me just see if I can get a quick thumbs up from the panelists if you're able to stay on for another 20, 30 minutes. Is that okay with you? All right. So I'm seeing nods and uh, a very hesitant. Oh, there's the thumbs up from uh, Dr. Dillon. So uh, let's carry on. We'll, we'll dive into the next question. We will have an end time of 8.30. So the next, next question, and just a reminder, if you see a question on the list that you want asked or answered, then you can go and click on the thumbs up, and it will help move it to the top of the list. And we're just going from the top, the most popular questions. So we're, we're really focusing on what our audience wants. So the next question, how soon should re-swabbing take place for those patients who are still symptomatic with prior negative results in community settings? Let's go with um, Dr. Whitscar. Uh, so I don't know. Um, in the hospital, I feel like for convenience sake, they're often getting done right away. So even like four, six, eight hours later, I know sometimes in the ICU, they're doing them like every hour or every two hours, which is probably not the right thing to do. Um, for us, it becomes a logistical issue because people who are still possible COVID are going to a separate ward and we're trying to move them off that ward. Um, so I don't, I don't have the right answer. Um, I think some places are doing every tw 24 hours, which maybe seems more reasonable. But I'm, so I'm curious to hear what Fat Paul and Saida are doing. Go ahead, uh, Seth Paul. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping uh, public health and our infectious disease colleagues aren't both listening into this right now because I'm going to start an argument. But the bottom line is that there's a ton of uh, uh, valid and differentiating opinions. Um, from, our, from our local ID perspective, if we've got persistent symptoms with a negative test, we are repeating in 72 hours. Um, we aren't repeating, as has been mentioned earlier, in patients that are asymptomatic that tested positive and that are about to be discharged. But that second test at 72 hours has been a little bit of a... Um, the bottom line is that we don't know when to retest, but that's uh, where we're starting for now. All right, so moving on. We, and we've been oh, okay. <laughs> So, yeah, I just see the number of questions is only going up, so let's, let's get right through these. Do you recommend pulse oximetry for patients to monitor their oxygen at home, uh, Dr. Hidani? I don't think it's a bad idea. I, uh, it's helpful, yeah. and especially since we are saying hypoxia is one of the main reasons that it's going to get you into trouble. And uh, if you have symptoms and are doing fine, your stats are good. It's, a, it's not a, a bad idea to keep monitoring when you're very symptomatic. Um, that would be my opinion. So the next question is about consulting via telemedicine. So again, many of our community colleagues or rural colleagues are talking to patients on the phone or talking to patients who are on uh, telemedicine. And they're trying to find out what testing or signs can you do on the phone, can you do on telemedicine to help differentiate stable from unstable patients. And so I'll ask, uh, I'll, I'll throw this to Sat Paul just because I see Dr. Whisker kind of throwing up her shoulders. Um, but before I do, I, I'll, I'll point out that there's a fantastic review that came out from our colleagues at the Peer Group. And, and they, they sent out a, a comment about this today saying that unfortunately after review of the evidence, there's no specific technique. I know the ROS score is being proposed, but it's, it's not useful. It's not reliable in assuring dyspneic patients that are not at risk that they're safe to stay home. So uh, we're still finding that no studies have evaluated dyspnea assessing COVID-19 patients. So they've got a link in, in the Tools for Practice website uh, from the British Medical Journal. And they say, you know, if there's any concerns, assess patients in person. Anything beyond that that you can add, Dr. Dillon? 
not really. I, I don't know what Simon or, or Katie or Saida, uh, if you've heard about the news two criteria that is being used in Europe. I know like that's just a straight set of vital signs that most people can get um, at, at their uh, at their clinics. But from the phone, unfortunately, we're only going by work of breathing and subjective uh, dyspnea. So if those two things are going uh, out of proportion to their baseline, we're asking them to come in for an assessment. And a lot of that can be established on the phone, listening to the number of words between breaths, or even asking them how, how many numbers they can count before they're going to stop and take a breath. So let's move on to the next question. What are the group's thoughts on high-flow nasal cannula oxygen treatment? Um, I think we've answered that one, so I'll go to the next one. Have several uh, customers with lingering cough since January and February, and that one just, uh, uh, so uh, several patients with lingering cough since January, February, they have no fever, they've got no shortness of breath, they've got no other symptoms. Lingering cough, no other symptoms of COVID, should they be tested for COVID? Uh, let's go with Dr. Uh, Whisker. I think this answer has evolved as our public health testing policies have evolved. Uh, a few weeks ago, they would not have met testing criteria. I think now anyone in BC can get tested if they want to. I think, I think the only reason to get tested would be sort of their own peace of mind. Um, if they've had symptoms for that long, then then they've expired the period of self-isolation. So they they could, you know, just be going about their regular social distancing business like the rest of us. So. I think unless they are going to be in contact with vulnerable people, um, are you know working in healthcare settings, that kind of thing, then that might be reasonable. But otherwise, with symptoms of that duration, um, I would think it's unlikely. So the next question wants uh, Dr. Hudani to comment a little bit more on the inverted triangle diagram that, that we showed at the start. So what are the timelines in terms of days for each of the three stages? Are you seeing a specific day in the disease course when these different stages start? Uh, no, um, I, can, I can't give you time um, dates, like a day nine, this will happen, day two, this will happen. But what it does tell you is um, that uh, when we're in the active viral phrase, phrase, phase, sorry, that, uh, you know, you're having symptoms of cough, fever, chills, and then once they're becoming dyspneic, that's when most of our patients are the ones that are symptomatic and coming to hospital. This is when we're seeing whether they're going to actually go into that active, rapid host reaction, inflammatory reaction, or are they going to just peter out? And so this is, this is where I find the most useful in helping me uh, decide, no, I better do more testing. I need to repeat a chest x-ray. I need to repeat my markers. Um, they're, they're, they're full code. They're tending towards possibly requiring extra help uh, or I need to call ICU. So that's when I use it. Each person is so different um, and that it's very difficult. But the, but the, um, the phases is what the important thing, stage one, stage two, and stage three. So for the next question, I'll throw this to Dr. Whiskar. Are you seeing folks using ultrasound in the hospital? Uh, would you say that ultrasound is better than chest x-ray? It's a great question. So I should disclose that my fifth year of GIM was entirely in POCUS, and I did a whole year of POCUS fellowship, so I'm very pro-POCUS. Uh, that being said, I think that it has a role in this pandemic, but you do have to be really careful with using it because it's not without risk. I think there's risks of 
fomite transmission with the machines if they're not sort of cleaned properly, as well as risk to the healthcare provider being in sort of close contact with the patient. So uh, practically, I'm finding it most useful in patients who I'm assessing who I have a lower moderate pretest probability or COVID, who I actually am looking for an alternate diagnosis in. Uh, so the patient where you're looking for heart failure, looking for a large pleural effusion you're going to drain, that kind of thing. Um, I think that certainly it probably is it is better than chest x-ray for picking up the, the imaging changes of COVID, uh, but I, I don't think that I would use it for that purpose exclusively, um, certainly not if I had a positive test. There have been patients where their first test has been negative, and I've gone to look to um, to use that as another diagnostic marker, but I think you have to be careful using it. Um, I think you want to make sure you have a focused clinical question, and, and probably this is not a time for ultrasound novices to be kind of playing around with the probe and spending a lot of time at the bedside. You should you know, know what you're doing and try to get that information efficiently. All right, Dr. Dillon, next question. Are D-dimers always elevated? Are there COVID patients who maintain normal D-dimers all through their clinical course, including in the ICU? Short answer is yes, absolutely. Our, our first patients, um, and, and like many people tuning into this, probably are in the same boat. There's that tremendous amount of anxiety until you see your first COVID positive patient. And I remember it like it was yesterday when our first patient came in, and he was one of our thicker ones. But like I said earlier, pristine labs, his D-dimer was normal, his LDH was normal, his CRP was normal. So we don't always see it. I know flat out that that's not the norm based on the um, numbers coming in from China and Italy and Spain and New York. But no, we don't see that. It's definitely helpful, helpful for prognostication, as mentioned earlier, um, but not always. All right, so we'll move on to the next question. I'm going to do a bit of uh, editorializing here. So I see there's 46 questions. We've got about um, uh, 25 minutes left. And I wanted to make sure that we're focusing clinically on the things that our panelists are experts at. So I'll, I'm going to avoid some of these public health questions. If we've got time at the end, definitely we'll get to the theoretical ones about uh, testing, um, the, the reliability of tests, and um, contact versus airborne. Um, but um, so let, let's go to, um, there's a question from Kathy Durant. Uh, she's asking, are any of you using ECMO, and are any of you using hyperbaric oxygen or refractory hypoxia. So I'll uh, maybe we'll start with Dr. Whitfair, who, who finds this question quite amusing. Well, I think none of us again are going to be putting people on ECMO given our specialties. Um, I do know that uh, VGH here has, I think, just in the last week, put their first three patients on ECMO. Uh, I think at the Columbian and Surrey, they probably also have a few on VV ECMO. Um, I mean, I think that's. A, a decision that, you know, intensivists with a lot of experience are going to have to consider very carefully. I know they've had a lot of problems with hypercoagulability and circuits clotting off in these patients, so they've actually found it really challenging. Um, so uh, I, can, I can't comment on the hyperbaric. I do not know if that's been used. I have not seen it used. So let's, let's do a, a rapid-fire question. It's a yes or no, uh, thumbs up for yes and thumbs down for no. So is there a severity score being used in your hospitals, such as the Brescia COVID Respiratory Severity Scale? Are any of you using a scale like that? Thumbs up if you are, and I'll ask you a comment. Uh, thumbs down, great. Very efficient. Let's move to the next question. Uh, what are primary nursing interventions needed when you're working with these patients? And uh, special welcome to the many, many uh, colleagues who signed up and indicated that their profession is in nursing. So any comments about what are you asking nurses to do when you're 
writing orders for these patients, and I'll leave this. Uh, let's go to Dr. Hudani first. Um, usually, the vital signs monitoring, you're trying to actually write orders that are very cognizant that you want nursing staff not to be in the room uh, for too long um, and not frequent enough because you don't want them putting on PPEs, keep tucking them off, putting them on. You want to reduce reduce their risk. So. One of the things we've done is, especially ones that we want to monitor frequently, and if it was a non-COVID patient and you wanted to monitor the vitals on a regular, even hourly, you would do that. With, the, with our COVID patients, what we've done is actually put the monitors in the room and have turned it around so the nursing staff can see it through the negative pressure room. Um, and if the SATs go down, because in reality, it's really the SAT and the pulse that you're really worried about, blood pressure will be lowish anywhere. They're not moving. They're quite sick or quite lethargic. And so that is one of the things with the nursing staff that we are doing is trying to limit the exposure for them to go in. We have also, with pharmacy, made it so that the pills um, that we're bringing or medications they need are as decreased in amount of time as possible. If it's a one-time, once-a-day pill, to try to give it all at the same time. There's no need in a hospital setting not to give your travastatin in the morning, things like that. So just revamping as much as we can so we limit the number of interactions that are going in the hall, in the, um, but still keeping our eye on them because that's the other important part. Fantastic, extremely practical, I love it. I'm going to do something that's going to make the UVC CPD staff panic because I, I see the next question says, wondering about any unusual drugs that can be used in palliative cases other than the usual, uh, for example, Lasix-Neb. So I'm going to try and share my screen here. I don't even know if I'm allowed to, but let's find out if we are. And uh, I'm going to give a shout out here to the fantastic palliative care uh, webinar that the recording is on the UVC CPD website, and they directed me to this website, which I found incredibly useful, Palliative Care Med ubc.ca slash coronavirus, palliativecaremed.ubc.ca slash coronavirus. Uh, amazing list of resources, symptom management. Uh, so I would definitely start there. And I'm going to ask our panel, I'll throw this to anyone on the panel, are you seeing things like LASIK, LASIK nebulizers or any creative palliative intervention? Sorry, my short answer is no. We, we haven't. We haven't gone beyond the basics that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, very cool, though, and, and thanks for that resource, Simon. So th there's a question about microvascular clots. So now that we know that those are part of the pulmonary and other end organ failure in COVID-19, how are you monitoring for microvascular clots? Dr. Whisker, I'll give that to I don't think you can. I mean, I think other than monitoring them clinically, um, and monitoring their lab parameters of hypercoagulability. I, th I think there's, like, we're certainly not doing routinely doing VQ scans or anything in these patients, nor are we doing routine, um, like, Doppler ultrasounds of the legs, like for DT. So I, I think we're just following them clinically. And again, uh, that may be a decision that you make to anticoagulate someone if they have worsening dyspnea and really elevated uh, coagulation parameters, even in the absence of a confirmed sort of large thrombus like a PE. But that's a question that I would talk to your specialist colleagues about. All right, so we're getting near the end here, and I haven't been fired yet, so let's get even more controversial. Is it true that DCM, I, this is not my question, I'm reading the questions coming in that have gotten five other upvotes. 
Is it true that BC doctors are getting hazard pay on top of billing, yet community hospitalists are running COVID wards for usual pay? Is this true? Who's going to debunk or prove this myth? I can confirm that I'm not getting hazard pay or any other form of extra pay that may be out there in the rumors. We certainly are not getting any extra pay, and uh, I'm not sure about the community uh, physicians at the Fraser, but I know we are, as hospitalists are not getting anything extra. And Dr. Wiskar refuses to comment. All right. Oh uh, no, no, we're, we're not. We're not getting anything extra either. Um, we we have we have changed a to an alternate payment plan from a from a. So we're on a different payment model, but we're not getting any additional pay. Certainly. All right. I work in urgent care and have not even heard of the term hazard pay in my clinic yet. So, um, moving on. How reliable are the sputum cultures? Does anybody know about how reliable? Are the sputum cultures? And again, I'll leave that uh, open for anyone to answer if you know about that. Uh, I know our ID docs were suggesting that as an alternative if we had negative PCRs in someone with high suspicion, but I don't actually know about the test characteristics. I know we've had difficulty often um, getting sputum cultures, and they don't want us to induce sputum, given that that would be aerosol generating. So um, I can't really. All right, so I'll move on because uh, we've got about 10 minutes left for questions, and I'm going to focus on the questions that are most relevant to our group here. So have any of you seen conjunctivitis in a patient with COVID? COVID, some of the literature is saying that it's a uh, poor prognostic factor. Uh, have any of you had experience with that? Can you confirm? I see three head shaking no, so we'll move on to the next one. How do you rule out TE if a patient is suspected of, of having COVID and the GFR is too low for CT angiograms? So you've got an elevated D-dimer, presumably. Uh, they're all short of breath. And would you just go ahead and give low molecular weight heparin, or would you do any other intervention? Uh, Dr. Zudani, I see you unmuted, so go ahead. I would definitely treat the PE, and I would get a VQ scan. So moving on, have you seen patients repeatedly continue to test positive even though they feel well? Their symptoms have resolved. And are any of you relying on negative swabs as tests of cure? So I know in, in urgent care, our public health colleagues are saying, don't be swabbing the patients for a test of cure. They're choosing to do so on their own for some patients. And I see Dr. Hidani shaking her head no, Dr. Dillon shaking no, and Dr. Whisker no as well. Holy smokes, we might actually make it through all these 38 questions at this pace. Um, are you seeing anosmia as a presenting symptom of COVID? How common is it? Uh, I know that I'm seeing in urgent care, I see a nod from Dr. Houdani and Dr. Whisker. How about you, Dr. Dillon? I, I wish I had, because it sounds so cool, but no, I haven't seen it, unfortunately. All right, well, let's carry on. What percentage of patients, well, that's a duplicate question there, what percentage get positive uh, loss of smell and taste? So we just answer that. Moving on to the next one. What is your PPO for a COVID admission? Test, investigations, initial management, um, so maybe just summarize. Um, what your pre-printed orders are, or what kind of lab and tests you're doing. I know we, we've kind of thrown around some of those before, um, but is, does anybody want to encapsulate what you're doing as, as your standard COVID admission panel? Um, ours was, um, uh, I think BGH or Coastal had their first one. It's very similar to theirs. It, it uh, highlights the markers on day one, test x-ray, 
but also um, high need of uh, blood cultures, everything that would be needed in order to differentiate this patient just to make sure that the dyspnea, uh, we are not missing something else and we're just focusing on COVID. Unfortunately, I don't have the PPO in front of me. I don't know if Katie or um, Satpal has it in front of them that they could uh, maybe highlight a few other points. No, I think sort of as you said, kind of regular monitoring of those lab parameters and then and supportive care. A lot of the other investigations uh, for ruling out alternate diagnosis are, are not part of our PPO as those are done and emerge by the initial kind of assessment team. Um, and then once they're on the COVID unit and they're confirmed COVID, then that's when the PPO is kind of kicking in. The one thing I do want to add, they are they're not, I, I know no longer we're adding uh, influenza in that, but the Tamiflu was part of the PPO, but now that we're past the flu season, it's no longer, we're not testing as much for RSV and influenza. So again, very helpful to be aware of, especially since uh, a lot of us who have worked and do work in rural areas don't have access to a lot of those tests that are getting done immediately on admissions. So. Uh, moving on to the next question about patients being discharged from critical care to acute care units. What are the needs of those patients? Do you have any comments on their presentation? Do they have delirium? And do they have specific rehabilitation needs? And I'll leave that question open to anyone. Yeah, we see quite a few of these patients coming out of ICU, and I think that um, they tend to be, because they've been in ICU, they tend to have already passed the peak of their illness severity and have had that sort of hyperimmune response. So it tends to be kind of convalescent care, uh, essentially, as with any other ICU patient. Uh, I think the extent of delirium and deconditioning depends on their on their premorbid status, but we're certainly seeing a lot of people coming up quite deconditioned, quite delirious, with all the, all the typical kind of post-ICU things that you'd expect. So the next question is about um, supporting our very vulnerable patients. Any thoughts on this, especially with long-term care admissions that are very limited these days, so patients who are very vulnerable due to aggression, due to wandering, due to self-neglect, and don't have a place to go necessarily. Any thoughts on uh, managing those patients? I know Fraser Health actually did. Um, they do have some shelters and uh, hotels that have been specifically geared for patients that are vulnerable. Um, and they're, um, if they're seen in eMERGE but do not need an admission, they are actually sent there. So the next question is about azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine. And uh, one, of the, one of our colleagues has said, I've heard from my patients in community that they were able to get a prescription for this. Uh, it doesn't say if it was for prophylaxis or for treatment, but what is the evidence for this medication, Dr. Whisker? The evidence is not great. Um, so I think hydro hydroxychloroquine, as Donald Trump said, was like going to solve everything. And obviously that's not been the case. There's been some trials recently that have kind of debunked that. And there was recently a big RCT that was ended early because of increased harm with hydroxychloroquine. Um, so I think that it's continuing to be studied at a more reasonable dose. Um, and, I, and I think there's still going to be a few RCTs that come out. But I think certainly in combination with azithromycin, like the QT prolongation there, it just seems like a recipe for disaster. So we are not using those medications. Uh, we're definitely not using azithromycin um, outside of, of course, treatment of CAP. Um, we are only using therapies such as those in the context of RCTs that are going on in our ICU. But on the ward, we're not giving anything, and I'm not suggesting them for prophylaxis for any of my friends who have asked me about them. <laughs> So 
I'm going to combine a few questions here. People are asking about uh, unusual presentation. Um, are you seeing hypothermia, uh, isolated acute CVA? I know in, in some of the critical care webinars they were talking about, especially in communities like New York where there's extremely high amounts of COVID, patients come in with stroke and they're found to have COVID. So is this something that we're seeing in DC as well? Uh, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think the short answer is that I don't think we know yet. I think there may be patients coming in that we just haven't tested because their presentation is so similar to, let's say, a stroke. Um, and unfortunately, we're not quite at the state where we're testing every person that comes into the hospital. So that's a great question. And I think, honestly, the answer is going to present itself in the next few weeks. So another question, we're, we're getting through these rapidly and, and it's impressive. Uh, are any of you using acetazolamide uh, in COVID? Again, the theory behind that was for a, about a week or two ago, there was a question about perhaps COVID is similar in presentation to high-altitude pulmonary edema. But uh, where are we at on that? Has that been debunked? Are you giving everyone acetazolamide? I see uh, three heads shaking no, so moving on. Um, so one of the questions, and I think this is a, a great perspective and, and a bit different than what we've been asking, where are you getting all this information? What resources do you recommend to stay up to date on the COVID literature? For me, it's been lots and lots of uh, searching on uh, CDC, eGuardian, lots of articles that are throwing, uh, going through that, uh, PubMed. Um, and as, as you mentioned already in some of the questions, there's lots and lots of uh, articles that come out with one or two and one or one or two that have been done, then an article has been written, and people are thinking that's the way to do things. But a lot of reading, it is literally at least two to three hours almost every night of just trying to make sure that you're up to date uh, and what's changing. Um, C seems to be one of the better ones. Uh, our, our eMERGE colleagues have also put on a website where they are uh, going through a lot of these articles and putting one that they feel that have been vetted properly. Yeah, I'll uh, specifically, I'll, I'll plug a couple of things. I think that uh, MCRIT, which is, I'm sure, familiar to many, and, and its sister site, PalmCRIT, has prob has one of the best uh, sort of foam resources for this. They have a COVID page that's continually updated, um, and there's podcasts that go along with that. Um, so I think I think that's a really great as sort of a one-stop shop for kind of critical evaluation of the literature, and, and uh, it's being changed as things evolve. Um, I also will, will briefly do a slightly personal plug. So I am part of a group as, uh, doing sort of uh, lit reviews, working with the health authority, and we have a podcast that right now is just going to be CH, but will be out on iTunes soon. It's called Virus Watch. So people can look out for that. It's like short, five to seven minutes uh, most days. Dr. Yulin, anything to add? No, the uh, short answer is I'm, I'm looking at the same sources that these uh, are presented. Sorry. So uh, I'm going to leave one last question for Dr. Whiskar as we're about to wrap up here. Are you seeing patients getting IL-6 inhibitors such as tocilizumab? Is that being prescribed? Mm. So we've had a few patients who have had this, uh, and that's been in consultation with one of our hematology colleagues, Dr. Luke Chen, who's an expert in HLH. So uh, it's been patients who have kind of worsening clinical phenotypes as well as lab parameters that are consistent with HLH, and it's been a very case-by-case -case, uh, basis. So we have seen that, but certainly I'm not ordering that independently.
And I'm going to leave it with my last question, which might be my favorite of the night. Do you think the COVID, we'll do a thumbs up, thumbs down for this, so yes or no. Do you think the COVID strain is more mild on the West Coast than in the East Coast? It's that very complex question with probably no research and just leave it to congestion. <laughs> Nobody wants to commit. There we go. We've got a, a couple of sideways questions, uh, thumbs and some shrugs in the air. Let's leave it at that. This has been a phenomenal evening. I'm so proud that, uh, to have you here and to, to be invited. Um, I'm sure all of us want to continue going through these questions. There's still dozens left, but um, we've reached our time. So my sincere gratitude to Dr. Houdani, Dr. Dillon, Dr. Wistar, as well as the UBC CPD staff who are working tirelessly behind the scenes, uh, Lindsay, Michelle, and as well as Dr. Bruce Hobson. And uh, we've also got our, uh, our staff um, who have uh, made this possible and um, not, not, to, not to mention um, all of the, our colleagues there as well. So um, I wanted to thank everyone here for attending. I hope this is of value to you. Please go ahead now and fill out the evaluation. Uh, do fill that out because we want to know what you thought and we want to know if this is helpful, what we should be doing in the future. I'll repeat that comment again. This happened tonight because of your comments and folks were asking for a COVID webinar for non-critical inpatients. And so uh, that's why Dr. Bob Blumen asked me to get involved and set this up. And so I'm really grateful for the team for joining us. And there's a couple last COVID webinars you might want to be aware of. On Thursday, April 30th, Innovation and Change in Family Practice Arising from the COVID-19 Pandemic Login, or Tuesday, May 5th, another one in the fantastic series, Ask Emergency and Critical Care Specialists. You can sign up on the UBC CPD website tonight. So we're going to end it there. On behalf of everyone on the panel, I'm Dr. Simon Moore saying thank you, stay well, and stay safe. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in for the rest of our episode. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 